Welcome to the Faith and More podcast. I firmly believe that the divine works through people to help us every day. These angels and saints are so very humble. Many of us don't know they exist or existed. Hello, my name is Angel and I'll be your host as we explore the lives of these amazing beings. We will also explore topics that can help your faith, no matter what it is or isn't. The goal of this show is to inspire, encourage, educate, uplift, strengthen, and heal you and your faith. Hello and welcome to your oasis in the desert, a place where you can catch your breath, recharge, and heal. If you're new to the show, thank you very much for finding us. It is my deepest hope and prayer that you find everything you're looking for in a podcast, especially a faith-based podcast here and more. And if you're returning, infinite thanks, blessings, and love for all of your support. So this is going to be one of those shows that I've been chomping at the bit to uh, record and share with all of you. But again, I, as I've said in the past on such shows, I wanted to make sure that we were all up to a certain level or speed uh, before presenting um, said information and historical facts because uh, this today's show is really going to change your mind, or at least I pray it changes your mind and your heart about uh, a figure in the Bible that although very little is said about her, um, she was a prominent figure more so than we know or more so than we've been told and her history her character um, her image has been distorted construed Um, it's been really terrible what people the church have done to her name and her history and memory Um, and we're going to get into that today So, show of hands, how many of you have heard of Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala? All the same person. Yeah, that's just about everybody. I mean, anybody that's Christian or uh, has been Christian at any time uh, knows of Mary Magdalene, or Magdalene, as she's more well known as. Uh, So, next, I have the question of what do you know about her? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the name Mary Magdalene? So I'm sure for most of you, two things come to mind instantly. Prostitute or reformed prostitute and um, having been possessed by seven demons and Jesus uh, exercised her of those seven demons so if that is your firm belief where you will not waver one way or the other that that's who mary magdalene is to you then you'll want to stop the show here because i don't want to upset anyone your beliefs are your beliefs you're entitled to them They are sacred to you, and I will not poo-poo on any of that. So, again, this is a disclaimer. If you are set in your ways and your beliefs and fixed and not open or wavering in any way, 
on Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene or Mary of Magdala, then you will want to stop the show here and just listen to some of the previous shows or just catch us next week. So I'll give just a couple seconds uh, for that because I don't want to start into this story and upset anyone. That is the absolute last thing I want to do. I want to educate people, but I want to educate people who are open-hearted and open-minded and are interested in, um, in this. And I know not everybody is, and that's perfectly fine. And again, I respect everyone. I respect your beliefs. Um, and again, so by now, I believe everybody who did not want to listen to this show should be gone. So to the rest of you that are here, infinite thanks, blessings and love for sticking around and for having an open mind and an open heart. It's nothing against anybody who doesn't. But to me, it is so key to our spiritual evolution to our spiritual life, for us to be open-minded and open-hearted. Jesus taught that. Uh, Buddha taught that. So many great teachers, masters, uh, prophets all taught that. And it is just mind-blowing, the information that I'm going to be sharing with you today about um, the conspiracy, actually, a conspiracy against Mary Magdalene and how she has been used and continues to be used as a weapon by the church to keep women in the church at a lower class than men and subservient. So longtime listeners by now should know who Father Mike Cantor is. If you're just tuning in, this is your first show and you have no idea. Go back and listen to episode one of this season where I interviewed uh, Father Mike. Um, so I'm no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not blaming Father Mike for this show, but I am saying that he did a show on his podcast called Logic in the Bible. I'll have a link to this in the show notes and descriptions called Biblical Her Story, H-E-R, capital H-E-R, lowercase S-T-O-R-Y, Herstory reclaiming the sacred feminine where he showcases women in the Bible who didn't quite get their just due um, and how the Bible, the writers of the Bible or interpreters of the Bible have twisted and misconstrued uh, women in the Bible. Um, and one of those is Mary Magdalene that he mentioned. So he got my mental you know, question mark, uh, light bulb <laughs> going uh, and got me heading in that direction uh, to figure out and find out and put on my detective hat and try to find out exactly what or as close as to what we can find out as to what is historically, who was historically Mary Magdalene. And of course, since this was over 2000 something years ago, this is quite difficult to uh, piece together, wouldn't you think? Well, really not, because there is a lot of information on someone who was not mentioned that often in the Bible. So the article that I'm going to be sharing with you today was uh, written by James Carroll on June 2006. And James Carroll is with the Smithsonian 
Institute. And this was published in the Smithsonian Institute magazine back in June of 2006. So those of you who live here in the States know that the Smithsonian Institute is probably one of the most credible historical resources in the United States, if not the world. I mean, they pride themselves on the accuracy of the information and history they have and that they share. And this article is no different. It is ironclad. Uh, so, but again, if you're not open, then you're going to poo-poo all this away, no matter what the history and the evidence points to. So before we begin, I would like everybody to put your detective hats on. If you look under your seat where you're at, if you're driving, don't do that. It's in the back seat. I'll hand it to you. Um, there should be a detective hat underneath your chair or in the back seat. I'm handing that to you right now here. Put your on your detective hats because what we're going to do now is we are now detectives. We are no longer spiritual seekers, people on the spiritual path, mystics, soon to be mystics, wannabe mystics, saints, angels. We are shedding all of those labels and just putting on one label and that is detective. So that's what we are doing in this show today is we are detectives and we're going to find out we're going to solve this mystery of who really was and is Mary Magdalene. Okay, so let's begin. The whole history of Western civilization is epitomized in the cult of Mary Magdalene. For many centuries, the most obsessively revered of saints, this woman became the embodiment of Christian devotion which was defined as repentance, yet she was only elusively identified in Scripture and has thus served as a scrim onto which a succession of fantasies has been projected. In one age after another, her image was reinvented from prostitute to sibyl to mystic to celibate nun to passive helpmeet to feminist icon to matriarch of divinity's secret dynasty how the past is remembered how sexual desire is domesticated how men and women negotiate their separate impulses how power inevitably seeks sanctification how tradition becomes authoritative how revolutions are co-opted how fallibility is reckoned with and how sweet devotion can be made to serve violent domination. All these cultural questions help shape the story of the woman who befriended Jesus of Nazareth. Who was she? From the New Testament, one can conclude that Mary of Magdala, her hometown, a village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, was a leading figure among those attracted to Jesus. When the men in that company abandoned him at the hour of mortal danger, Mary of Magdala was one of the women who stayed with him, even to the crucifixion. She was present at the tomb, the first person to see whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection, and the first to preach the good news of that miracle. These are among the few specific assertions, or assertions, excuse me, made about Mary Magdalene in the Gospels. From other texts of the early Christian era, it seems that her status as an apostle 
in the years after Jesus' death revaled even, or excuse me, rivaled even that of Peter. This prominence derived from the intimacy of her relationship with Jesus, which according to some accounts had a physical aspect that included kissing. Beginning with the threads of these few statements in the earliest Christian records, dating to the first through third centuries, an elaborate tapestry was woven, leading to a portrait of St. Mary Magdalene in which the most consensual note that she was a repentant prostitute is almost certainly untrue. On that false note hangs the dual use to which her legend has been put ever since, discrediting sexuality in general and disempowering women in particular. So, Jinkies, there's our first clue, detectives. What did it say that historically, back in the day, Mary rivaled Peter? And those of you who are Roman Catholic or know anything about Roman Catholicism and also Eastern Orthodoxy, he's one of their icons as well, and founders is Peter was the person who founded the church. Peter is the one in charge of the church. Peter is the one in charge, period. He is the be-all to end-all. His word is gospel regardless of what anybody says. So that's our first clue as to why Mary Magdalene is being treated over the centuries as she is. So we'll write that clue down in our handy dandy notebook and continue on. Confusions attached to Mary Magdalene's character were compounded across time as her image was conscripted into one power struggle after another and twisted accordingly in conflicts that defined the Christian church over attitudes towards the material world focused on sexuality the authority of an all-male clergy, the coming of celibacy, the branding of theological diversity as heresy, the sublimations of courtly love, the unleashing of chivalrous, excuse me, chivalrous, chivalrous, I, maybe I should edit that. No, we'll just keep it. Chivalrous violence, the marketing of sainthood, whether in the time of Constantine, the Counter-Reformation, the Romantic Era, or the industrial age through all of these reinventions of Mary Magdalene played their role. Her recent reemergence in a novel and film as the secret wife of Jesus and the mother of his fate burdened daughter shows that the conscripting and twisting are still going on. And that is a reference to the Da Vinci code because back in 2006, that is when the book and the movie were coming out. But in truth, the confusion starts with the Gospels themselves. In the Gospels, several women come into the story of Jesus with great energy, including erotic energy. There are several Marys, not least, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. But there is Mary of Bethany, sister of Martha and Lazarus. There is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, the wife of Clopas. Equally important, there are three unnamed women who are expressly identified as sexual sinners. 
the woman with a bad name who wipes Jesus' feet with ointment as a signal of repentance, a Samaritan woman whom Jesus meets at a well, and an adulteress whom Pharisees haul before Jesus to see if he will condemn her. The first thing to do in unraveling the tapestry of Mary Magdalene is to tease out the threads that properly belong to these other women. Some of these threads are themselves quite knotted. It will help to remember how the story that includes them all came to be written. The four Gospels are not eyewitness accounts. There's our next clue, detectives. The four Gospels are not eyewitness accounts. They were written 35 to 65 years after Jesus' death, a gelling of separate oral traditions that had taken form in dispersed Christian communities. Jesus died in about the year A.D. 30. The Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke date to about 65 to 85 A.D. and have sources and themes in common. The Gospel of John was composed around 90 to 95 A.D. and is distinct. So when we read about Mary Magdalene in each of the Gospels, as when we read about Jesus, what we are getting is not history, but memory. Memory shaped by time, by shades of emphasis, and by efforts to make distinctive theological points. Clue number three. And already, even in that early period, as is evident, when the varied accounts are measured against each other, the memory is blurred. Meaning that you should be able to, if this was eyewitness accounts, again, seeing this as detectives, I know a lot of you have watched enough mystery shows and whodunits to know what a good detective does when they're investigating. The testimony of eyewitnesses has to be corroborated between each other. It has to match up, but it does not in the Bible. But yet we take this as, quote, gospel, end quote. It cannot be disputed. It should never be questioned. So again, keep being a detective here. We're not going to waver from that. We can all agree or disagree, or you can stop listening if you've had enough at this point. But I urge you to hang on because we are just getting started. This is such an amazing investigation and an amazing story and such amazing clarification will come for you at the end of the show. Regarding Mary of Magdala, the confusion begins in the eighth chapter of Luke. It says, Now after this, Jesus made his way through towns and villages preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. With him went the twelve, as well as certain women who had been cured of evil spirits and ailments. Mary, surnamed the Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, Susanna, and several others who provided for them out of their own resources. Two things of note are implied in this passage, which we'll say two clues. First, these women 
quote, provided for, end quote, Jesus and the twelve, which suggests that the women were well-to-do, respectable figures. It is possible this was an attribution to Jesus' time of a role prosperous women played some years later. Second, they all had been cured of something, including Mary Magdalene. The seven demons, as applied to her, indicates an ailment, not necessarily possession, of a certain severity. Soon enough, as the blurring work of memory continued, and then as the written gospel was read by Gentiles unfamiliar with such coded language, which the whole Bible is coded language, those demons would be taken as a sign of moral infirmity. So if I may interject just a little bit. Yeah, I know. (laughs) When can I interject just a little bit? From my seminary class on mysticism and mystics, Mary Magdalene was mentioned in that. And it was mentioned that Mary was from a well-to-do family and that she was wealthy and she was helping fund Jesus and the Twelve and and all of that that was going on. She was doing everything she could to help financially fund Jesus. Plus, she was a follower and disciple of Jesus. And that seminary course taught me that what was referred to as seven demons being taken out of Mary was code for the seven deadly sins. That the seven deadly sins were eradicated out of Mary from Mary's awakening from Jesus's teachings. As we're going to see as this article goes, and from my studies as well on Mary, that she was so far beyond the disciples. We have to remember, if you are familiar with the Bible, the disciples Bumbled about. I mean, it was almost like a Three Stooges movie, and Jesus was trying to teach the Three Stooges about, uh, you know, the kingdom and his teachings and what things should be and how to teach others. And they just bumbled about and they, they doubted him and they questioned him and they didn't get the parables. So much to the fact that when they were alone with him, they had to ask him to further explain the parables because they didn't get them. However, Mary did. She understood everything Jesus was teaching and saying. And it was almost like, if not actually, she had a photographic memory and she could quote him word for word. And that's going to come into play here in a little bit. But I just wanted to interject and give you all a little bit more information from my studies, uh, personal studies, um, you know, in seminary class on Mary Magdalene. This otherwise innocuous reference to Mary Magdalene takes on a kind of radioactive narrative energy because of what immediately precedes it at the end of the seventh chapter, an anecdote of stupendous power. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to a meal. When he arrived at the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table, a woman came in who had a bad name in town. She had heard he was dining with the Pharisee and had brought with her an alabaster jar of ointment. She waited behind him at his feet, weeping, and her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them away with her hair. Then she covered his feet 
with kisses and anointed them with the anointment. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman is that is touching him and what a bad name she has. But Jesus refuses to condemn her he, or even to deflect her gesture. Indeed, he recognized it as a sign that her many sins must have been forgiven her or she would not have shown such great love. Your faith has saved you, Jesus tells her. Go in peace. The story of the woman with the bad name, the alabaster jar, the loose hair, the many sins, the stricken conscience, the ointment, the rubbing of feet, and the kissing would, over time, become the dramatic high point of the story of Mary Magdalene. The scene would be explicitly attached to her and rendered again and again by the greatest Christian artist. But even a casual reading of this text, however charged it is, juxtaposition with the subsequent verses, suggests that to the two women have nothing to do with each other. That the weeping anointer is no more connected to Mary of Magdala than she is to Joanna or Susanna. Other verses in other Gospels only add to the complexity. Matthew gives an account of the same incident, for example, but to make a different point and with a crucial detail added. Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper when a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of the most expensive ointment and poured it on his head as he was at table. When they saw this, the disciples were indignant why this waste, they said. This could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Jesus noticed this. Why are you upsetting the woman, he said to them. When she poured this ointment on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you solemnly, wherever in all the world this good news is proclaimed, what she has done will be told also in remembrance of her. This passage shows what scriptural scholars commonly call the telephone game, character of the oral tradition which the Gospels grew. Instead of Luke's Pharisee, whose name is Simon, we find in Matthew, Simon the leper. Most tellingly, this anointing is specifically referred to as the traditional rubbing of a corpse with oil, so the act is an explicit foreshadowing of Jesus's death in Matthew and in Mark. The story of the unnamed woman puts her acceptance of Jesus coming to death in glorious contrast to the male disciples refusal to take Jesus's predictions of his death seriously. But in other passages, Mary Magdalene is associated by name with the burial of Jesus, which helps explain why it was easy to confuse this anonymous woman with her. Indeed, with this incident, both Matthew's and Mark's narratives begin the move toward the climax of the crucifixion because one of the disciples, the man called Jesus, goes in the very next verse to the chief priest to betray Jesus. In the passages about the anointings, the woman is identified by the alabaster jar. But in Luke, 
with no reference to the death ritual, there are clear erotic overtones. A man of that time was to see a woman's loosened hair only in the intimacy of the bedroom. The offense taken by witnesses in Luke's concerns sex, while in Matthew and Mark it concerns money. And in Luke, the woman's tears, together with Jesus' words, define the encounter as one of abject repentance. But the complications mount. Matthew and Mark say that the anointing incident occurred at Bethany, a detail that echoes in the Gospel of John, which has yet another Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and yet another anointing story. Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha waited on them, and Lazarus was among those at the table. Mary brought in a pound of very costly ointment, pure nard, and with it anointed the feet of Jesus, wiping them with her hair. Judas objects in the name of the poor, and once more Jesus is shown defending the woman. Leave her alone. She had to keep this scent for the day of my burial, he says. You have the poor with you always. You will not always have me. As before, the anointing foreshadows the crucifixion. There is also resentment at the waste of a luxury good. So death and money define the content of the encounter. But the loose hair implies the erotic as well. Okay, does anybody need to take a break? <laughs> if you do, you can pause the show here because isn't your head spinning by now? I mean, have you ever sat down and compared um, Gospels as to what each disciple or apostle, however you want to label them, said? Look at the inconsistencies there's a huge difference between anointing someone's feet and pouring it over their head. There's also huge inconsistencies with where this took place, with whom it took place, who was Jesus having dinner with. I mean, we're given so many different versions of this story, but the church tells you this is rule, this is gospel, you are to believe. Believe what? Which, which, which one am I supposed to believe? Which one are we supposed to believe? You know, as detectives, where is the evidence to prove which one is which? Which one is correct? Is any of them correct? Because again, we have to remember the Bible is written in puzzle language. It, it is, it's a puzzle. It's a Rubik's Cube. You can't take it, and we've talked about this before, you can't take it for just word for word. There's so much hidden in the, in the wording of it. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. So, if you're all ready, we will continue. <laughs> the death of Jesus on Golgotha, where Mary Magdalene is expressly identified as one of the women who refused to leave him, leads to what is by far the most important affirmation about her. All four Gospels and another early Christian text, the Gospel of Peter, explicitly name her as present at the tomb. And in John, she is the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus. This, not repentance, not sexual renunciation, is her greatest claim. 
Unlike the men who scattered and ran, who lost faith, who betrayed Jesus, the women stayed. Even while Christian memory glorifies this act as lo- of loyalty, its historically context may have been less noble. The men in Jesus' company were far more likely to have been arrested than the women. And chief among them was Mary Magdalene. The Gospel of John puts the story poignantly. It was very early on the first day of the week and still dark when Mary of Magdala came to the tomb. She saw that the stone had been moved away from the tomb and came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the other Jesus, excuse me, the one Jesus loved. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, she said, and we don't know where they have put him. According to the Gospel of John, Peter and the others rush to the tomb to see for themselves, then disperse again. Meanwhile, Mary stayed outside near the tomb weeping. Then, still weeping, she stopped to look inside and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head, the other at the feet. The angels said, Woman, why are you weeping? They have taken my Lord away, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. As she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Though she did not recognize him, Jesus said, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and remove him. Jesus said, Mary. She knew him then and said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai which means master. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me because I have not yet ascended to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So Mary of Magdala went and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. As the story of Jesus was told and told again in those first decades, narrative adjustments in event and character were inevitable and confusion of one with the other was a mark of the way the gospels were handed on most christians were illiterate they received their traditions through a complex work of memory and interpretation not history that led only eventually to texts once the sacred texts were authoritatively set the exegetes who interpreted them could make careful distinctions, keeping the roster of women separate. But common preachers were less careful. The telling of the antidotes was essential to them, and so alterations were certain to occur. The multiplicity of the Marys by itself was enough to mix things up, as were the various accounts of anointing, which in one place is the act of a loose-haired prostitute in another of a modest stranger preparing Jesus for the tomb and in yet another of a beloved friend named Mary. Women who weep, albeit in a range of circumstances, emerged as a motif. As with every narrative, erotic details loomed large, especially because Jesus' attitude towards women with sexual histories was one of the things that set him apart from other teachers of the time. Not only was Jesus remembered as treating women with respect as equals in his circle, not only did he refuse to reduce them to their sexuality, 
Jesus was expressively portrayed as a man who loved women and whom women loved. The climax of that theme takes place in the garden of the tomb with that one word of address, Mary. It was enough to make her recognize him, and her response is clear from what he says then, do not cling to me. Whatever it was before, bodily expression between Jesus and Mary of Magdala must be different now. Out of these disparate threads, the various female figures, the anointment, the hair, the weeping, the unparalleled intimacy at the tomb, a new character was created for Mary Magdalene. Out of the threads, that is, a tapestry was woven, a single narrative line. Across time, this Mary went from being an important disciple whose superior status depended on the confidence Jesus himself had invested in her to a repentant whore whose status depended on the erotic charge of her story and the misery of her stricken conscience. In part, this development arose out of a natural impulse to see the fragments of Scripture whole, to make a disjointed narrative adhere, with separate choices and consequences being tied to each other in one drama. It is as if Aristotle's principle of unity, given in poetics, was imposed after the fact on the foundational text of Christianity. Thus, for example, out of discrete episodes in the gospel narrative, some readers would even create a far more unified, more satisfying legend according to which Mary of Magdala was the unnamed woman being married at the wedding feast of Cana, where Jesus famously turned water into wine. Her spouse in this telling was John, whom Jesus immediately recruited to be one of the twelve. When John went off from Cana with the Lord, leaving his new wife behind, she collapsed in a fit of loneliness and jealousy and began to sell herself to other men. She next appeared in the narrative as, the, as by then a notorious adulteress whom the Pharisees thrust before Jesus. When Jesus refused to condemn her, she saw the error of her ways. Consequently, she went and got her precious ointment and spread it on his feet, weeping in sorrow. From then on, she followed him in chastity and devotion, her love forever unconsummated. Do not cling to me, and more intense for being so. So that's another version as well that the author is sharing, one that I was not aware of, um, I had never heard before. And it continues on. Such a woman lives on as Mary Magdalene in Western Christianity and in the secular Western imagination, right down, say, to the rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar, in which Mary Magdalene sings, I don't know how to love him. He's just a man, and I've had so many men before. I want him so. I love him so. The story has timeless appeal, first because that problem of how, whether love should be of eris or agape, sensual or spiritual, a matter of longing or consummation, defines the human condition. What makes the conflict universal is the dual experience of sex, the necessary means of reproduction and the madness of passionate encounter. For women, the maternal can seem to be at odds with the erotic, a tension that in men can be reduced to the well-known opposite fantasies of the Madonna and the whore. 
I write as a man, yet it seems to me in women this tension is expressed in attitudes not toward men, but toward femaleness itself. The image of Mary Magdalene gives expression to such tensions and draws power from them, especially when it is twined to the image of that other Mary, Jesus' mother. Christians may worship the Blessed Virgin, but it is Magdalene with whom they identify. What makes her compelling is that she is not merely the whore in contrast to the Madonna, who is the mother of Jesus, but that she combines both figures in herself, pure by virtue of her repentance. She nevertheless remains a woman with a past. Her conversion, instead of removing her erotic allure, heightens it. The misery of self-accusation, known in one way or another to every human being, finds release in a figure whose abject penitence is the condition of recovery. That she is sorry for having led the willful life of a sex object makes her only more compelling as what might be called a repentance object. So the invention of the character of Mary Magdalene as repentant prostitute can be seen as having come about because of pressures inhering in the narrative form and in the primordial urge to give expression to the inevitable tensions of sexual restlessness. But neither of these was the main factor in the conversion of Mary Magdalene's image, from one that challenged men's misogynist assumptions to one that confirmed them. The main factor is that transformation was, in fact, the manipulation of her image by those very men. The mutation took a long time to accomplish fully the first 600 years of the Christian era. Again, it helps to have a chronology in mind with a focus on the place of women in the Jesus movement. Phase one is the time of Jesus himself, and there is every reason to believe that, according to his teaching and in his circle, women were uniquely empowered and fully equal. In phase two, when the norms and assumptions of the Jesus community were being written down, the equality of women is reflected in the letters of St. Paul in 50 to 60 AD, who names women as full partners, his partners in the Christian movement. And in the gospel accounts that give evidence of Jesus' own attitudes and highlight women whose courage and fidelity stand in marked contrast to the men's cowardice. But by phase three, after the Gospels are written, but before the New Testament is defined as such, Jesus' rejection of the prevailing male dominance was being eroded in the Christian community. The Gospels themselves, written in those several decades after Jesus, can be read to suggest this erosions because of their emphasis on the authority of the twelve, who are all males. The all-male composition of the Twelve is expressly used by the Vatican today to exclude women from ordination. But in the books of the New Testament, the argument among Christians over the place of women in the community is implicit. It becomes quite explicit in other sacred texts of that early period. Not surprisingly, perhaps, the figure who most embodies the imaginative in theological conflict over the place of women in the church as it had begun to call itself is 
Mary Magdalene. Here, it is useful to recall not only how the New Testament texts were composed, but also how they were selected as a sacred literature. Now, there's another clue, everyone. The New Testament texts were selected. It wasn't just these are this. This is the New Testament. These are the books that we're following. It was purposely chosen by men. The popular assumption is that the epistle of Paul and James and the four gospels together with Acts of the Apostles and the book of Revelation were pretty much what the early Christian community had by way of foundational writings. These texts believed to be inspired by the Holy Spirit are regarded as having somehow been conveyed by God to the church and joined to the previously inspired and selected books of the Old Testament to form the Bible. But the holy books of Christianity, like the holy books of Judaism, for that matter, were established by a process far more complicated and human than that. The explosive spread of the good news of Jesus around the Mediterranean world meant that distinct Christian communities were springing up all over the place. There was a lively diversity of belief and practice, which was reflected in the oral traditions and later texts those communities drew on. In other words, there were many other texts that could have been included in the canon or list, but weren't. It was not until the 4th century that the list of canonized books we now know as the New Testament was established. Did you guys catch that? Not until the 4th century after Jesus. That's when the New Testament that we know was first established. This amounted to be a milestone on the road towards the church's definition of itself precisely in opposition to Judaism. At the same time, and more subtly, the church was on the way toward understanding itself in opposition to women. Once the church began to enforce the orthodoxy of what it deemed scripture and its doctrinally defined creed, rejected texts, and sometimes the people who prized them, also known as heretics, were destroyed the first thing that comes to my mind with that statement there are the cathars i don't know if you've all heard of the cathars before but that was a religious group a christian religious group catholic religious group in the south of france and some say it was founded by mary magdalene uh, that after um, you know she went on her way to teach which she did she was the Apostle to the apostles. So she was the head. Um, and again, we'll talk about that more here a little bit later on. But she went, it is said that she went to the south of France and she began teaching there. And that's where she lived the rest of her days. And the Cathars are supposed to be known as a spiritual community that professes Mary Magdalene. So, so you can see where it's going wrong already. Um, if they're following Mary Magdalene, then what does that mean? That means they're against the church, right? That's how the church seen it. So the church actually did an inquisition. They actually tortured, killed, and killed all of the Cathars, completely elim eliminated them, eradicated them, um, genocide, you can call it that. And they completely destroyed all of the texts, teachings, anything written 
um, anything that could be passed down of the Cathars to make them extinct. Yes, this is the, the Roman Catholic Church that did this back in the 400s. So, excuse me, I could need to correct it. Not in the 400s, but in 1244 is when a really bad mass burning, mass killing execution uh, took place. It was in March of that year. So the article continues. This was a matter partly of theological dispute. If Jesus was divine, in what way? And partly a boundary drawing against Judaism. But there was also an expressly philosophical inquiry at work as Christians, like their pagan contemporaries, sought to define the relationship between spirit and matter. Among Christians, that argument would soon enough focus on sexuality and its battleground would be the existential tension between male and female. As the sacred books were canonized, which texts were excluded and why? This is a long way around, but we are back to our subject because one of the most important Christian texts to be found outside the New Testament canon is called the Gospel of Mary and telling of Jesus' movement story that features Mary Magdalene, decidedly not the woman of the alabaster jar, as one of the most powerful leaders, just as the canonical gospels emerged from communities that associated themselves with the evangelists who may not actually have written the text. This one is named for Mary, not because she wrote it, but because it emerged from a community that recognized her authority. Whether through suppression or neglect, the Gospel of Mary was lost in the early period, just as the real Mary Magdalene was beginning to disappear into the writhing misery of a penitent whore, and as a woman, whereas women were disappearing from the church's inner circle. It reappeared in 1896 when a well-preserved, if incomplete, 5th century copy of a document dating to the 2nd century showed up for sale in Cairo. Eventually, other fragments of this text were found. Only slowly through the 20th century did scholars appreciate what the rediscovered gospel revealed, a process that culminated with the publication in 2003 of the Gospel of Mary of Magdala, Jesus and the First Woman Apostle, by Karen L. King. And I'll have a link to this in the show notes if anybody wants to get this uh, book. It, it's, it's, it's amazing. It, it's, it will completely change how you see Mary, even if, you, if this show doesn't do that all in and of itself. Although Jesus rejected male dominance as symbolized in his commissioning of Mary Magdalene to spread word of his resurrection, male dominance gradually made a powerful comeback with the Jesus movement. But for that to happen, the commission of Mary Magdalene had to be reinvented. One sees that very thing underway in the Gospel of Mary. For example, Peter's preeminence is elsewhere taken for granted in Matthew. Jesus says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Here he defers to her, Mary. Peter said to Mary, this is from the uh, Gospel of Mary. Peter said to Mary, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than all other women. 
tell us the words of the Savior that you remember, the things which you know that we don't because we haven't heard them. Mary responded, I will teach you about what is hidden from you. And she began to speak these words to them. So it is said that because Mary Magdalene had no issue with what Jesus said, whatever he told her or taught her, she immediately understood. She was able, and again, with that photographic memory, was able to sponge up everything he was saying. And because he didn't have to keep explaining himself, he would often talk to Mary in private and share teachings with her that he knew the other guys couldn't understand. I almost said goofs, sorry. <laughs> the other disciples, excuse me, apostles wouldn't have understood unless he spent 15, 20, 30 years explaining what they were. I mean, we have to remember the original disciples and apostles, we can't condemn them for this and we shouldn't judge them, but they were fishermen. They were just everyday blokes. They weren't, they didn't have education. Um, I think Matthew did because he was a tax collector, so he had some education. But for the most part, they, they didn't. They didn't have education. They were illiterate for the most part. And the only thing they knew was where, from the town they were at and how to fish. You know, they knew how to do that. They were experts at that. Or were they because of the time they couldn't catch fish? But we won't get into that. You see where I'm pointing with this. Mary recalls her vision, a kind of esoteric description of the ascent of the soul. The disciples, Peter and Andrew, are disturbed, not by what she says, but by how she knows it. And now a jealous Peter complains to his fellows, did Jesus choose her over us? This draws a sharp rebuke from another apostle, Levi, who says, if the Savior made her worthy, who are you then for your part to reject her? Way to go, Levi. Good for you, man. I mean, you can see how much of a goof Peter is and how he's, you know, it's all about him and his way. And you, if you read the Gospels, you will see how Peter is. He's quick to temper and he's such a hothead. He's irrational. He does whatever he wants, regardless of what anybody else says. It's, it's in the Bible. Just study it. Look him up. Read it. It's there. Again, we're going by, remember, we're all detectives right now. So we're going based on evidence. If this is, you know, the modus operandi of uh, Peter, then if this is how he is, then guess what? That's how he is. That's how he's going to be with every interaction. That's his character. That's how he is and what he is. Just like us, we all have our quirks. Some of us have a short temper. Some of us think we know it all. Peter was like that. So yes, people can change, but as we're seeing in the scriptures, in the gospel, time and time again, he did not. He was very brash. He was very egoistic. That's a great way to put it. He was very egoistic. So all of those out there who are St. Peter fans and followers, please don't hate me. I'm not bashing on him. I'm just, we're again, we're all detectives. I'm pointing out the evidence here. So let me restate that last sentence again, where Levi says, if the Savior made her worthy, 
Who are you then for your part to reject her? That was the question not only about Mary Magdalene, but about women generally. It should be no surprise given how successfully the excluding dominance of males established itself in the church of the fathers that the gospel of Mary was one of the texts shunted aside in the fourth century as the text shows the early image of this Mary as a trusted apostle of Jesus reflected even in the canonical gospel text proved to be a major obstacle to establishing that male dominance excuse me dominance which is why whatever other heretical problems this gospel posed that image had to be recast as one of subservience so the church decided she needed to be recreated can't have this image of mary out there can't have people thinking she knew more than the men did can't think she, you know jesus gave her teachings he didn't give the men let's back her back down to being a prostitute um reformed sinner reformed prostitute who jesus cast not or seven demons out of um, she was possessed you know um, she was just a lowly woman she you know just so dainty and subservient no that's all garbage all just so much garbage simultaneously the emphasis on sexuality as the root of all evil served to subordinate all women the ancient roman world was rife with flesh hating spirituality stoicism manichaeism neoplatonism and they influenced christian thinking just as if as excuse me as it was gelling into doctrine Thus, the need to disempower the figure of Mary Magdalene so that her succeeding sisters in the church would not compete with men for power, meshed with the impulse to discredit women generally. This was most efficiently done by reducing them to their sexuality, even as sexuality itself was reduced to the realm of temptation, the source of human unworthiness. All of this, from the sexualizing of Mary Magdalene to the empathetic veneration of the virginity of Mary, the mother of Jesus, to the embrace of celibacy as a clerical ideal, to the marginalizing, excuse me, marginalizing of female devotion, to the recasting of piety as self-denial, particularly through penitential cults, came to a kind of defining climax at the end of the 6th century. It was then that all the philosophical, theological, and ecclesiastical impulses curved back to Scripture, seeking an ultimate imprimatur for what by then was a firm cultural prejudice. It was then that the rails along which the church and the Western imagination would run were set. So show of hands, do any of you know that priest being celibate was not a thing until the 6th century? I, for one, was not aware of that until about a year ago when I was doing my studies. And that balled me over. I was like, why, why and how did this all come about? Because if priests were able to marry and have families... From the 6th century before and before that, why now 
Can't they? Well, what was the cause? Well, this article is showing us historically why and how this all came about because the Roman Catholic Church wanted us to believe that sex was the root of all evil, period. Pope Gregory I, from 540 to 604 AD, was born an aristocrat and served as the prefect of the city of Rome. After his father's death, he gave everything away and turned his palatial Roman home into a monastery where he became a lowly monk. It was a time of plague, and indeed the previous pope, Pelagius II, had died of it. When the saintly Gregory was elected to succeed him, he at once emphasized penitential forms of worship as a way of warding off disease. Okay, did you all catch that? All of my detectives, did you catch that? That he was turning the church and those in the church to start doing penance for what? To ward off disease. Now, how do you think that would have worked against COVID? His pontificate marked a solidifying and of discipline and thought a time of reform and invention both. It all occurred against the backdrop of the plague, a doom-laden circumstance in which the abjectly repentant Mary Magdalene warding off the spiritual plague of damnation could come into her own. With Gregory's help, she did. Known as Gregory the Great, he remains one of the most influential figures ever to serve as Pope. And in a famous series of sermons on Mary Magdalene, given in Rome in about the year 591, he put the seal on what until then had been a common but unsanctioned reading of her story. With that, Mary's conflicted image was, in the words of Susan Haskins, author of Mary Magdalene, Myth and Metaphor, finally settled for nearly 1,400 years. It all went back to those gospel texts cutting through the exegetes' careful distinctions, the various Marys, the sinful women, that had made a bold combining of the figures difficult to sustain. Gregory, standing on his own authority, offered his decoding of the relevant gospel texts. He established the context within which their meaning was measured from there on. He said, She whom Luke calls the sinful woman, whom John calls Mary, we believe to be the Mary from the seven devils were ejected according to Mark. And what did these seven devils signify, if not all the vices? There it was, the woman of the alabaster jar, named by the Pope himself as Mary of Magdala. He defined her. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Isn't this... Are you all getting all riled up like I am? As if it wasn't bad enough, he continues. He says, It is clear, brothers, that the woman previously used the unguent to perfume her flesh in forbidden acts. What she therefore displayed more scandalously, she was now offering to God in a more praiseworthy manner. She had coveted the earthly eyes, but now through penitence, 
These are consumed with tears. She displayed her hair to set off her face, but now her hair dries her tears. She had spoken proud things with her mouth, but in kissing the Lord's feet, she now planted her mouth on the Redeemer's feet. For every delight, therefore, she had had in herself, she now immolated herself. She turned the mass of her crimes to virtues in order to serve God entirely in penance. Wow. Isn't that something? So, that's how, folks, those of you who had heard of Mary Magdalene before Mary Magdalene or Mary of Magdala, and you, like me, were taught that she was a prostitute and that she had seven demons that she was possessed with cast out of her by Jesus. This one human being cemented her name for 14, over 1,400 years to something she was not. Now, my dear detectives, look at this evidence. Here we have somebody blatantly giving misinformation and changing history, literally changing history. The address, brothers, is the clue through the Middle Ages and the Counter-Reformation into the modern period and against the Enlightenment, monks and priests would read Gregory's words and through them they would read the Gospels texts themselves, chivalrous knights, nuns establishing houses for unwed mothers, courtly lovers, desperate sinners, frustrated celibates, and an endless succession of preachers would treat Gregory's reading as literally the gospel truth, holy writ, having recast what had actually taken place in the lifetime of Jesus was itself recast. The men of the church who benefited from the recasting forever spared the presence of females in their sanctuaries would not know that this was what had happened. Having created a myth, they would not remember that it was mythical. There, Mary Magdalene, no fiction, no composite, no betrayal of a once venerated woman became the only Mary Magdalene that had ever existed. Okay, so if I may interject here for just a moment on how this evolution or de-evolution could happen is, I want to give this example. Years ago, <laughs> I know, here we go, right? Hang on. People are going to start falling asleep already. No, no, this is good. This is good. This, it, it's, it's, it's related to this. Believe me, I'm not chasing a squirrel. Um, I, where we live, I was walking the dog and I heard this finch um, trying to sing the song that all the finches sing. And bless its little heart, it was so crackled and off key and the notes that it was singing were nowhere near what the other finches always sing what happened did the finch eventually learn to sing the right song or the song of its predecessors no it continued 
And what happened? Generations of finches in my area now sing the off-key tune that that little finch started. Now, how does this happen? Well, beings, little baby birds are born and they grow up with that song being prominent in their area and instantly believe that is what their song is. And that's what this Pope did. He changed Mary Magdalene into what he thought she was. I mean, honestly, I believe that he believed it. But it changed everyone. So generations coming after that, as the article says, myth no longer was myth. Myth became fact. We see that a lot in our world right now with upcoming generations of people changing things and changing morals and, you know, the right, what we always were taught was the right thing to do growing up. Now isn't the right thing to do anymore, you know? Speaking out for what we believe to be unjust can get you canceled in today's world. And that's being fed to generations coming up. So guess what? This is how the world's going to evolve is this whole cancel culture. Unless something changes and it can be reversed or eradicated is going to become a norm and it's going to become a way of life and taught to children, which it already is. That's that's so, so tragic. But anyway, I wanted to share that with you all as, as kind of seeing how, you know, one person has such an immense effect on everything. And that points to you as well, detectives, spiritual people. You affect everything. Never underestimate the power of you and your influence on others and what you can do for others. I know, now I'm chasing a squirrel. All right, okay. I admit that, but I'll wrap it up. But again, I just want to emphasize that. Just like this Pope used his power to make that change, you can use your power to make positive spiritual changes by helping others, by being like Christ, by being like Buddha, being like Hecate, uh, being like Diana, being like whoever you follow. Being like them, walking like them, living like them. Remember, folks, our spiritual way is not just something we do. It's what we are. Okay, I'll get back now. Stop chasing the squirrel that I love so much. <laughs> so the article continues. This obliteration of the textual distinctions served to evoke an ideal of virtue that drew its heat from being a celibate's vision conjured for celibates, Gregory the Great's overly particular interest in the fallen woman's past, what that oil had been used for, how that hair had been displayed, that mouth brought into the center of church piety a vaguely prurient energy that would thrive under the licensing sponsorship of one of the church's most revered reforming popes. Eventually, Magdalene 
as a denuded object of Renaissance and Baroque painterly preoccupation became a figure of nothing less than holy pornography, guaranteeing the ever lustful harlot, if lustful now for the ecstasy of holiness, a permanent place in the Catholic imagination. Thus, Mary of Magdala, who began as a powerful woman at Jesus' side, became, in Haskin's summary, the redeemed whore in Christianity's model of repentance, a manageable, controllable figure, an effective weapon, an instrument of propaganda against her own sex. There were reasons of narrative form for which this happened. There was a harnessing of sexual restlessness to this image. There was the humane appeal of a story that emphasized the possibility of forgiveness and redemption. But what most drove the anti-sexual sexualizing of Mary Magdalene was the male need to dominate women. In the Catholic Church, as elsewhere, that need is still being met. So one last thing, that was the article. One last thing I would like to add is um, the church kind of, sort of, has kind of, sort of, tried to redeem itself um, by making Mary Magdala or Mary Magdalene of Mary of Magdala a saint. They made her a saint in 1969. That was 53 years ago. I know that because that's when I was born. <laughs> I don't need a calculator for that. 53 years ago, just just 53 years ago, they made the main disciple, apostle of Jesus, a saint. Wow, wasn't that nice? And then they added a little comment, a little, little blurb, a little statement saying, or a little tweet, that, um, you know, not saying, naming Pope Gregory, but they said that that information, um, in going back now in 1969, and revisiting the uh, Gospels and the scriptures. Um, it's inconclusive as to if the woman with the alabaster jar was Mary Magdalene. So they still put her as that, but not put her as that. And celibacy continues within the church. You know, blessings to the Eastern Orthodox who allow their priest to marry um, infinite blessings to the Anglican church that allows their priest to marry and not only their priests but they allow women to be priests in the Anglican church bravo to them this needs to change reform needs to happen in the church all people can understand and agree with this regardless of what faith you are all churches need re reformation to some if not many degrees because we're going based on a text that is from a part of history that we're not I'm not saying that you can't apply Jesus's teachings to now yes you definitely can but for us to take that or the churches to take that word for word and manipulate it twist it turn it into what they want or just make up words themselves um if you don't believe me read the catechism 
That's all a bunch of, where did that come from? I knew I was going to get on my soapbox. Sorry, folks. Um, that is all written by the church, people of the church. I mean, one thing, if you guys are long, who, those of you who are long-term, long-time listeners, first of all, infinite thanks, blessings, and love to you uh, for, for being supporters of the show, for listening as long as you have. You know, nothing against the guys. Some of the greatest shows we have had have been about what? Women. Women saints are some of the most incredible mystics. It's something how a woman can, the way their her heart and mind is wired, that they can like just bam, I mean, just go right into mystic mode. They can go right into communion with the divine. It, it's just where guys... We're like Peter. We're like the disciples. We're like the three stooges, you know, again, not not putting men down at all. It's just we operate on a different wavelength. We operate on a different frequency. We've been raised over time to see, think and act in a certain way. We're supposed to be like, oh, like John Wayne and Clint Eastwood, um, you know, people from my generation. That's how we were raised men. You know, you don't cry. You don't show emotion. You stand tall. Somebody says something to you, you knock them down. You knock them down hard and you don't let them get back up. Because what happens if you let them get back up? When you get home, your dad's going to knock you down and you're not going to get up. That all has to change. We all have to see that the male-female energy is in all of us. I'm not saying we're gender bending or changing genders. I'm just saying you have that in you, that yin and yang, you know, it's all with it. It's all the divine. If you think God is a man, that's ridiculous. God is not in gender. God is not male. God is not female. The divine is not male. The divine is not female. You know, and it's just something that we've, got to get through our heads and understand and start changing and a change begins with us you know we change ourselves from that we change our world we change we share that with everybody we come in contact with i'm not saying you impose your beliefs on anybody au contraire you show by your actions people will know who and what you are by how you act and how you treat them Okay, so I do apologize, everyone, that this was such a lengthy show, but I, if you've made it to this point, I think you will agree with me that it was um, very much a needed length of time, that to cut this story short would be to, yet again, take Mary Magdalene and change her or thwart her or throttle her or cut her or turn her into something that she wasn't. You know, I hope all of this information has been beneficial to all of you and have opened your eyes and hearts to it. Thank you. If you've made it this far again, thank you. I will have a link to this article uh, if you want to print it out and read it or if you just want to keep playing this show again. I know. Could your ears handle it? I think you would start your ears would start to bleed. <laughs> but anyway, I do have a question for all of you. Or favor, question and favor. Question is, 
did you find this show interesting and fascinating? And what I mean by that is, did you find it interesting and fascinating enough to continue on another show that has even more information on someone else in the Bible? Now, that one you're going to need to think about. And please let me know. But you're saying, I know, I know, I, I hear it. You're saying, I can't make it, I can't answer that question until I know who it's about. It's about Jesus. And it's nothing heretical. At least I don't see it as heretical. And it's nothing blasphemous. If anything, it's just amazing. It's truly amazing. It's a story about Jesus that most of you have never heard. And I would like to share that with all of you, but I need you all to contact me, email me, fill out the form on the website. I'll give all that information here in a minute and let me know if that would be something you would be interested in. If it is, I will do the show in an upcoming episode. But if this show repulsed all of you and you're like, I'm not listening to that goof ever again, poo-poo on him, then I completely understand and I will not do the show. I know, and everybody's probably, some, I can hear my wife now, who, who cares what other people think? What, what is the divine telling you to do? What, what feeling are you getting from the divine? Well, the divine is telling me to do this show, but I have the utmost respect and courtesy for, and love for each and every one of you. So although the divine is making me feel that it wants this show to be done, I am, want to first poll you guys and see what you think and feel. If you really liked this show or even liked it a little bit or you found it fascinating, we'll say that, then the show on Jesus is just really going to wow. It is, it's, it's definitely that. It's a wow. It will be a wow show. So let me know. Let me know. And I'll have that information here in just a moment if you're not already aware of the information on how to contact me. Prayer updates and requests for this week are as follows. Infinite thanks, blessings, and love to everyone who was praying for and is praying for Haven. Her procedure, uh, her angiogram went very well, better than we could have expected. She does have mild to moderate blockage and calcification, but nothing to the extent that the CT scans showed. The CT scan showed that her... Um, main artery, her widowmaker artery was 80 to 90% blocked. And that's not the case. So we are beyond grateful and beyond blessed and infinite thanks and blessings and love to all of you who are praying for Haven. We so much appreciate it. Mike S is still in need of prayers. Um, he's the one we've been talking about for quite a while now with the racing heart. Um, he was being monitored every six months. So please keep Mike S in your prayers. Bob, stage two, follicular lymphoma. Bob is feeling much better now than he did this time uh, last week. So he's recovering well from his second treatment. Please keep him in your thoughts, heart, and prayers that he recovers fully and that his cancer goes into complete remission. Please keep Elaine in your thoughts and prayers. She is Bob's wife and my mother. Of course, everything she's going through. She's taking the next round of her breathing treatments, and she's responding well to that. So let's please keep her in our heart, thoughts, and prayers. 
Next, we have Clyde. Clyde is Elaine's brother. He had a pacemaker put in about a month or so ago. Uh, is having mobility issues still, so please keep Clyde in your heart, thoughts, and prayers. Um, Kathy, we've mentioned, she's a friend of the show who has pretty much got something wrong with every organ in her body. Um, and let's please keep her in our heart, thoughts, and prayers. She's stable now and doing all right, but we need that to, to be her normal, her every day is that she's all right. Michael T., still in need of our prayers with MS-like symptoms. Um, he is a new neurologist. I haven't been able to contact Mike lately to see, or excuse me, Michael lately to see how things are going with him. I hopefully will be able to do that this weekend, and I will be sure to let you all know the update. Please keep him in your heart, thoughts, and prayers. Next, we have Emma. Emma has left shoulder surgery scheduled for September 13th. Uh, please keep her in your heart, thoughts, and prayers. Megan, Molly, Gwen, and also Jean, please keep them in your prayers for general things such as health and prosperity. And last but certainly not least is Father Mike Cantor. I am scheduled to talk with Father Mike uh, later today. Hopefully we'll be able to do that. Hopefully he's feeling up and well enough to, to speaking with me, and I will be sure to update you all on his condition as far as I know, he's still battling whatever is going on, and doctors still don't know what's going on with him, as he always tells me. They have ideas, and he has ideas, but nothing is so definite, and they keep changing up his medication, which is causing him a lot of uneasiness, a lot of illness, and just not feeling well at all on top of everything else. So please... Please, please keep all of these amazing beings in your heart, thoughts, and prayers. And if you are in need of prayers, I will have information at the end of the show and at the end of every show on how you can contact me with your prayer request. I love to pray, and people that listen to the show love to pray. So let us pray for you. So we'll close with a real quick prayer. Oh, great divine, the all that is all, thank you for having such mercy on this human race, your children, us, <laughs> that we are such bumbling goofs at times and we make such messes of things and we misconstrue things and whether it's purposely or not on purpose. Um, and we are so sorry, even though we had no hand in it, we are so sorry for those who came before us that had painted Mary Magdalene as what they did and which deprived all of us from the sacredness and the amazingness of her being. Um, yes, it's great that the church made her a saint, but we could have always had her closer in our hearts and in our minds if we would have known the truth. And thank you the all that is for shining a light on that truth, at least to some of us. And I so pray with that your will be done, that this truth continues to spread and that women are finally allowed to be equals in the church and take a place as priests or priestesses or however they want to be labeled, whether that be in any religion, all religions, please, please allow that to happen. And please, all that is, 
thank you for being there for all of us. There are so many of us that are suffering. The world is suffering. We ask that you send your angels and saints to help us, to help us turn things around. Help us realize where we're going wrong so we can correct that. Help our leaders to realize where they're so wrong and help change them, please. Thank you. Amen. So before we go, I do have one quick reminder. I know, like I'm quick with anything. I'm such a windbag. But no, seriously, I guess I was being serious. I don't know. (laughs) Is the pet show that's going to be coming up. It's going to be our season finale show for this year. If you're new to the show, this is the first time you've heard this. If you are a longtime listener, you've heard me talk about this uh, for quite some time now. So if you're one of those people that's waiting to the last minute, you're almost there. I mean, I know we're at what episode here, but it's it's fast approaching and I need a little time to be able to record this episode. And I've received a few people with entries but i haven't received stories i'm I'm, i've just received like hey mention fufulu pup pup and it's like uh okay but what about fufulu pup pup you know what was fufulu pup pup to you you know what you know give me the story of said fufulu pup pup you know (laughs) because that's what the show is going to be all about is sharing the live and stories of these amazing uh, fur babies or furless babies or whatever these pets or as we say children or babies are to us uh, on this episode. So, I mean, I could just say, hey, you know, so-and-so said, hey, mentioned Fufulu Pup Pup. Okay, I just mentioned Fufulu Pup Pup, but then you're all scratching your head like me saying, what about it? You know, what about Fufulu? You know, who was Fufulu? So, or Pup Pup, <laughs> whatever you called it. So, please, if you've already written me or contacted me, a lot of you <laughs> that are family can contact me directly by phone or text. Um, please write me back, text me again with the story, you know, email me with the story. And if you're waiting to the last minute, you know, time's ticking. Uh, take a moment. You know, share the story of your beloved pets, your beloved Fufulu Pup Pup. <laughs> so I can share that story with everyone that listens to the show. And those of you who are new to the show don't know how to contact me, but that information is coming up here in just a moment. Those of you longtime listeners already know it's at the end of every show. I so hope and pray that you have enjoyed the show and that you found everything that you've been searching for in a podcast, especially a faith-based podcast, and more here with us. Don't be a stranger. Come around anytime, all the time. We now have an Amazon.com wish list for the show for anyone who would like to make an offering. Um, A link can always be found in the show notes and show description. Now, I know some people like to do that, that, that... helps them feel as you know they're contributing and doing something and this is the best way because some people have asked me about setting up a patreon and i'm completely against that i don't want to accept any kind of money for anything i'm doing here jesus didn't do it buddha didn't do it i didn't do it before when i taught uh, buddhism and eastern philosophy for four years um 
but I will accept books. So I do have a list uh, on that wish list for the show that you can, if you feel compelled to and you have the means, please don't take from your grocery money or your bill money or from just life money. If you have it and you want to make an offering, then go to the wish list and do so. I would be beyond grateful and appreciative. And by purchasing books and sending them to me, what you're doing is you're helping me educate myself so I can then pass that education on to all of you. And that also sparks and creates and inspires more and more shows. So it's a gift that keeps giving that's never ending. I'm always open to questions and suggestions. Um, as I always say, there's it's always like crickets in my mailbox. I don't hear much from anybody, but you know, unless it's family, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I know there are so, so many of you all over the world that are listening, and I completely understand and I respect your privacy, and I respect that you're quiet. Um, and but I do want you all to know that I'm here for you all the time. And uh, again. Speaking of suggestions, I mean, I know there are so many amazing angels and saints, past and present, in your community, in your country. Could even be you that the world doesn't know about, but by gosh, we should know about. Um, could be some that have come and gone that are fading from memories and hearts. And we tend to you know, shine the light on a lot of those here in the show. And that's kind of one of the goals of this show is to make sure these beings stay alive because they are such amazing, truly amazing. Um, it, it's tragic for someone, anyone really, to be their memory to be lost, uh, their life to be lost. And we don't want that. So again, please, please, please feel free to contact me, share these people with me, even if it's you. Please get with me, share with me so I can share with the world. Remember, you don't have to be alone on your spiritual journey. Again, I'm always here for all of you. I'm always available to help guide, uh, offer advice. Uh, you can always email me directly or contact me through the website. My services are ever growing and expanding as the spirit takes me and as you all need and the cost of these services or all services I provide is absolutely zero. Absolutely free. I'm here for you guys. Next is prayers. Uh, you guys always hear me say this and you always will. I love to pray and so do listeners of the show. So please let us pray for you. So all of these services, how do you make it happen? by contacting me. And how can you do that? There's two ways you can do that. First, you can email me directly at faithandmorepodcast, all one word, faithandmorepodcast at gmail.com. And the second way is through the website. There's a contact button on the website where you can email me or you can fill out the prayer request form at the bottom of the web page. You can also use that form for also asking for help, for guidance, for suggestions, for advice. Use that as well. It's a, it's a catch-all form. Use it as you need it. So in order to find the website, you go to 
Faith and More Podcast. Again, all one word, faithandmorepodcast.wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash my dash site, S-I-T-E. And there's always links to my contact information, email, and the website in all of our show notes and show descriptions. So, until next week, have a blessed week and know that each and every one of you is in my heart in prayers. Bless you.